Hi, I'm Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast where it's all about Maryland. We have a no-holds-barred conversation featuring Maryland newsmakers and newsbreakers, journalists, reporters, politicos, politicians, policy wonks, prognosticators, political activists, organizers, community leaders, and so many more. Man, that's a lot of peace. Here on a Minor Detail Podcast, we get to the bottom of every story. We talk about news and politics in an open and honest format. And we find the minor details because every detail matters. You can follow us on the web at a aminordetailpodcast.com and aminordetail.com for the latest Maryland news and politics. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. You are listening to a Minor Detail podcast on Blog Talk Radio, as well as, let's see, we're on CastBox, we're on iTunes, we're on virtually every single platform that you can access podcast, Overcast as well. So be sure to download us on one of those applications. This morning, I have a guest. His name is Thru Vignaraja. He's 42 years old. On April the 10th, that is, that was a Wednesday, jumped into the mayoral race for Baltimore City. We've been hearing a lot about Baltimore City on the news lately, about the mayoral <laughs> happenings. There's a lot going on with uh, the, the mayor herself, and none of it seems good. Uh, she is engulfed in a scandal. But more importantly today, what I want to do is talk to Thru and better understand what his policy agenda is for the city of Baltimore and how he's going to connect with voters inside of the city. And he's going to be calling in and we're going to talk about what his agenda looks like and a little bit about Thru, and he'll have an opportunity to introduce himself. Uh, he is a, a lawyer, and he recently ran for Baltimore State's attorney. He was previously the Deputy Attorney General of Maryland. He's also been a federal prosecutor. He uh, clerked for Justin Stephen Breyer and was the president of the Harvard Law Review. According to his Wikipedia bio, he is now a litigator at the law firm DLA Piper in Baltimore, and he's been the lead attorney for the state of Maryland in the post-conviction appeals. Of course, we all heard of the case Anand Saeed. And he is a immigrant as well. He is the son of immigrants from Sri Lanka. He graduated from Woodlawn High School in Baltimore, Maryland. He studied at Yale College, where he received his degrees in political science and philosophy. And then he earned a master's degree in medical ethics at King's College in London. He joined the consulting firm McKinsey & Company before attending Harvard Law School. And as I mentioned, he was elected president of Harvard Law Review and was responsible for leading a push for addressing the gender disparity and reviewing the admissions. So we are waiting for through to to call in and we're going to talk to him again about his run for mayor of Baltimore City. No candidates have officially announced yet. Other than through, he is in the race, he is running, 
and he was the first out the gate. He was the first out um, a few days after Sidey Die, which was on April the 8th of this year, uh, which was the end of um, Maryland legislative session. And so we are going to better understand what he hopes to accomplish for Baltimore City. There's lots of issues. There's crime. There is poverty issues, generational poverty issues with Baltimore City. And I want to use this show to really get to know through. I want him to I want him to express who he is. I want him to dig deep into why he's running, if he can really connect with the voters there. And I would ask any candidate that. And of course, through um he is someone who is no stranger to politics. He is before, as I mentioned earlier in the show, he's run before office before. And so it's my pleasure for the first time to welcome through Vignaraja on a minor detail podcast through. Nice to have you with us this morning. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you've jumped into a, a national race now because Baltimore city, as you know, through is getting national coverage, but not necessarily for the right reason. So I introduced your bio before you called in. And so let's talk directly about your mission to become Baltimore city's next mayor. And it's, it's quite an undertaking, but first, why don't you introduce yourself and briefly tell us a little bit about yourself? I really appreciate that opportunity, Ryan. Thanks so much. Um, you know, I, I, I absolutely want to talk about uh, why I feel so deeply about what Baltimore is enduring uh, today, but it is rooted in my, uh, in my background. Baltimore is in my blood. Uh, my mom came to teach at Poly High School before I was born. When she returned a decade later, this time with two infants in her arms and my father in tow, they were fleeing a civil war in Sri Lanka and came back to Baltimore with no money, no jobs, um, and no clear sense of what they were going to do. Um, but Baltimore gave them a chance. Uh, my mom, who had started her career at Poly, finished teaching at Morgan State in Baltimore City. My father taught at Edmondson and then Douglas Southern and then Western. Uh, he taught for 37 years in Baltimore. And at the end of his career, uh, he actually was the oldest teacher teaching in the state of Maryland. He was 80 years old. He's uh, 82 now. He doesn't like me telling people that. Uh, but that's the proud tradition in which I was raised. Um, I uh, went to public schools myself from Edmondson Heights Elementary to graduate from Woodlawn High School. And then I got a chance to live the American dream, the Baltimore dream. I uh, went to Yale for college and Harvard for law school. I was president of the Harvard Law Review. I clerked on the Supreme Court before I was a federal city uh, and state prosecutor in Baltimore. Uh, I most recently served as the Deputy Attorney General of Maryland, and the candid truth is that in so many of those roles, I had a chance to serve and to make a difference in Baltimore, but what has taken hold in Baltimore these last few years, uh, the worst murder rates in the country, local and national headlines about the scale of corruption at the highest levels, um, it is breaking my heart, and it is something I just can't sit idly by and watch. Um, and when that unfolds in the city that raised you, uh, it is not just a career move. It's not something that, you know, I want to do because uh, it's, it's some next, it's, it's a calling, it's a charge. Um, and when you talk about the scale and challenge of the problem, that is what makes it uh, impossible for me to sit and watch. 
Um, and I'm, you know, I'm glad people are paying attention. They're paying attention for the wrong reasons, and I hope to change that. But the, the thing that sets Baltimore apart, perhaps, is that it is the city in America that has the greatest distance between where we are and what we can be. Um, I, I believe that from my own life. I believe that from everything I've seen and worked on uh, uh, over the course of my career. You're no stranger to politics. Of course, you ran uh, two years ago um, for – well, actually, about a year ago for Baltimore City State's attorney, and you came up short in that race. And your family's no stranger to politics either. Your sister, uh, Krishante Vignaraja, ran for governor of Maryland, and she – uh, she, and, and one thing I've noticed about the Vignaraja family, and I, I've been covering politics in Maryland for a few years now, is that through – I see this – that you are approaching politics almost as an outsider. Even though you have been in prestigious legal positions in the state, and you've, and you've had the opportunity to, to do significant public service, but what I see from the Vignaraja family that's almost refreshing is that you don't necessarily approach politics through this establishment framework that has come to define a lot of Maryland politics. It's not like somebody is saying in a back room, through your next step is this, you're going to have this party support, you're going to go out and we're going to, we're going to put this amount of money. No, 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 this is you as selling your story, selling your narrative, and you don't necessarily have that backing of the party. Is that, is, is that, is that fair to say? You know, it's a good observation that we're, we're, we're not career politicians. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact uh, and I don't like to speak on behalf of Krish. I think she can. She has her own voice, and it's an amazing one. <laughs> she does. Uh, but she I does. do think it is. I do think it's common uh, to the two of us that we were not thinking about this as a career. Um, politics was something we observed. Uh, she was uh, policy advisor to Michelle Obama. I've had a chance to serve in some extraordinary capacities uh, in the world of government and politics. But that was something that we always watched from a distance. It was not how we defined or expected to define our careers. Over the last couple of years, however, I think two things have happened. Not only have the Obamas and the Clintons reminded a generation of people across the country, not just in Baltimore, that public service can be a noble and great calling, that people that are doing this for the right reasons and with good ideas and lead with their head and their heart um, can, can really make a dent. Um, I think that backdrop coupled with, I mean, the literal crisis that is unfolding in Baltimore um, makes it uh, very different. You're, you're absolutely right. If you'd asked me a couple of years ago to, to name the members of the, the state delegation of the city council, I would have struggled. I, I paid attention. <laughs> I cared deeply. But I'm not sure I would have been able to, to, to answer that trivia question. And that's because I think a lot of people are not engaged in politics in that way. I cared deeply. I was working in the trenches of Baltimore. Um, but you then see a chance to realize that some of the fastest, most effective ways to make a difference is local government. And, uh, and in some of those roles, you have to convince the people that you've got the right ideas. And I, I loved running for, for office, Ryan. I, I, uh, you know, the extrovert in me loved it. I got a chance to meet people and talk to people and hear their stories and hear their concerns. I loved that. It was nourishing of the soul. I also got to talk about ideas. Um, you know, if you go back and look, uh, uh, this was not politics as usual in that regard either. We put out, you know, ideas and innovative solutions to lots of problems, and that is how I expect this campaign to be defined as well.
You've had a distinguished legal career. You have served in many capacities within our legal system. How does that role as a, an attorney, the former deputy attorney general, of course you worked under Brian Frosch, a federal and city prosecutor, through how does that prepare you to, to be the next mayor of Baltimore City, especially in a high-profile leadership position? Yeah. You know, I've always believed that, you know, whether it's, it's your family or faith or fate uh, that convinces you of what your calling is, what sort of, you know, shapes your DNA, um, there's a moment where I think people are called to serve. Uh, you know, some different time in Baltimore's history, I don't know that a former prosecutor would have been the right uh, leader uh, for Baltimore. But we are facing a crisis that is defined by crime and corruption. Uh, those are things that I have devoted my life to fighting every day uh, with my pen, with my words, uh, with my heart and soul. Um, and it puts me in a better position to understand the scale of the problems as well as the solutions uh, to those problems. Uh, I'm not alone, by the way. Um, when we talk about outsiders that are new to politics, that have uh, taken the reins and have been uh, you know, uh, embraced by the people of their cities. You look at Mike Dugan in Detroit, former prosecutor, yeah, sure. uh, focuses on crime and corruption, is doing uh, you know, extraordinary work uh, in many ways there. You look at Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, former prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, uh, focusing on crime and corruption. Uh, she has been obviously embraced there. I think there is an appetite, particularly in Baltimore, for somebody who says, look, I've worked on these problems. I know what the challenges are. I've got solutions to them. They don't require mass incarceration or zero tolerance. They require surgical, effective leadership. Um, I think that has put me in a particularly good position. I mean, gangs and violent crimes uh, is, is you know, the prosecutorial work that I did day in and day out at the federal, city, uh, and state level. There's also an important leadership dimension to this. You're talking about a $3 billion corporation. You're talking about a $3 billion company that's failing. Um, and understanding the levers uh, that make government work, being part of uh, those conversations over the course of my career, really does put me in a position, I think, to, to lead us uh, out of this. I think one of the fears I always have is that people think from a distance that this problem of government is easy. It's not very complicated. It's not just the political constraints that exist. It's the institutional constraints. It's the legal constraints. It's the practical constraints. And I think folks uh, uh, demand and deserve a leader that has the, the, the background experience as well as the innovation and insight and ambition for the city uh, to, to get us out of this rut. Through you're clearly educated. You're a, I mean, Yale, Harvard, two of the best inst academic institutions in the country. You've had some absolutely interesting positions that have elevated you to speak clearly about those important issues affecting Baltimore City like crime. But I want to go down to the very base level. You're out on the street and you're walking into portions of Baltimore City that is plagued with generational poverty. And let's just be real on this show. And that's what I try to do. How? You know, look, as a Harvard man, as a Yale guy, how is it – how are you going to be able to connect directly with voters that have maybe the, the limitations of a high school education? How are you going to be able to really connect with some of the people inside of the city and, and, and be able to, to talk to them on a level? Because it's – you know, I, I, I can see – I know Baltimore City pretty well. 
and I, I would imagine that some people will say this guy, you know, he, he's well-educated. He has a great policy platform, but you know, he, he's different from us because he has all of this education. And sometimes in this culture, it's bizarre that education is actually used against people. And we saw that demonstrated well with the last presidential election that it seems like yeah. anti-intellectualism took hold and became this movement, which I don't understand and I'm trying to better understand it. But yeah, through how do you go out and connect with people on the street? It's a, it's a great question. I appreciate uh, uh, the point. I, I do think it's really important to sort of reckon with these issues and not to pretend they're peripheral. We're talking, you're talking about issues of poverty. You're talking about issues of socioeconomic class. You're talking about issues of race. Um, I got to point out, first of all, that I really hope that Donald Trump is the exception. And even if he isn't the exception nationally, he sure uh, as heck is the exception in Baltimore. Uh, yeah. uh, we didn't vote for that guy. And the anti-intellectualism uh, of a Donald Trump had no sway in Baltimore. That's the first thing. The second thing is before I went to Yale or president of the Harvard Law Review or Kirkland Supreme Court or deputy attorney general, I'm proud of that career. I absolutely am. But before I did that, I was a boy from Baltimore. My parents are retired city school teachers. We fled a civil war across the other side of the earth to come to what amounted to a civil war uh, here in Baltimore. And uh, I, I am sometimes asked, when I left the feds and came to the city, people said, how's he, how's he going to connect with the Baltimore city jury? And, mm -hmm. and when they asked me that, I said, what are you really asking? Are you asking about how I engage with people of different race? Because I want to point out that in most of the rooms in my life, uh, the South Asian Hindu has been the other, has been the stranger. I'm no stranger to that problem. That's, and that's when right. You talk to a, and when you talk to a jury, uh, you know, I don't know if I can count on one finger the number of times I've had somebody of my background on that jury. I'm talking to white jurors and black jurors, old jurors and young jurors, educated jurors and jurors that have had a different uh, uh, course, and I talk to them with one voice. I think we do an extraordinary disservice to uh, – uh, to, to not have faith in the voters. These are people that, uh, that, that know some stuff from their own lives, and they don't know other things. We have to take the time to hear them out and to listen to their stories and to understand them, and then to share our ideas, uh, not in ways that talk down to them, not to lower the common denominator, but to raise it. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, I'm proud of my career as a trial lawyer. I had a lot of success, and I think that uh, translates to talking to people on the trail because they don't think I'm talking down to them. They understand that I am proud of my career, that I'm talking about solutions in sophisticated and complicated ways, but also in ways that I hope they understand. And, 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 uh, and by the way, um, when we think about how to talk to folks, you have to understand that different people care about different things, uh, not just in terms of policy and what they believe are the biggest problems, but also in what they believe uh, resonates with them, which sort of creates a common bridge. You know, somebody said uh, after the last election, they were, you know, uh, uh, you know, congratulating me. They said, you know, you got a quarter of Baltimore City on election day to vote for a South Asian Hindu who'd never run for office before. And, and I think he said it to be funny. He said, let's be honest, no one voted for Thiruvik Naraja by accident. That was, that was a conscious <laughs> choice. And, and we are proud of, uh, of that. And the, the thing is that when you talk to those folks, some people say, wow, his dad was a teacher at Edmondson and Douglas. Some people say, wow, his mom went back and got uh, a PhD when she was 60. Uh, wow, he grew up 
uh, in an apartment complex that went to a tough school that went to a high school that had very few I, I was there. I was there on the day yeah. that your sister announced, and it was it was just remarkable that you took it back to your roots when and 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 when Chris announced when she ran for governor in September of 2017, you stood in that Woodlawn apartment complex. I, I was there that day, yeah. and I saw the pride beaming from your parents. And here. And I want to before we go into your policy platform, which is the most important part of this uh, of today's conversation that we're having. um, Baltimore City. Here's the thing. Baltimore City. I don't think that we're at the point where people care whether there's an R or D next to your name. They're looking for a leader. The city has been through a lot in the last couple of years and especially in the last, what, month and a half. Ever since the, the the Baltimore Sun broke the story about Mayor Catherine Pugh, the, yeah. and you know, and the Healthy Holly scandal, through what is going on with this scandal, it just seems. And by the way, I I want to give a shout out to the Baltimore Sun. Incidentally, they have done some incredible journalism. I don't think we would be where we are today, and without the. The, 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 the just absolutely dogged reporters that have been on this case and uncovering new bits and pieces of this story every single day. I mean, it's unbelievable. And that speaks to the credibility of the Baltimore Sun as a longstanding journalistic institution uh, in the state of Maryland and nationally as well. I want to give them a lot of credit. What are your what are your thoughts on this scandal? Yeah, L- let me first reinforce that that last point that you made. You know, Maryland has shown to the world the risks and the courage and the importance of local media. Uh, you know, the Capital Gazette, Gazette got honored recently, as I'm sure you know, because yeah. it needs to be remembered that it's not just foreign correspondents in war zones that take extraordinary risks. It's our journalists at home uh, every day because this is controversial and important work. And just like so many charged with public service, you are in the eye of the storm. Um, and frankly, the importance of their work, uh, you know, I think a lot of us have appreciated for a long time, but what has unfolded over the last month and a half is, is nothing sh- short, but, you know, Pulitzer Prize uh, deserving. We are talking about a, uh, a, a range of corruption that has existed and eroded the system for years. Uh, when you talk about career politicians, I'm proud not to be a career politician right now because we are talking about uh, you know, systematic change that is desperately needed, um, where people just assume that a pay-to-play culture, that, you know, kissing the ring of the establishment, you know, uh, uh, putting a little money here, putting a little money there was just what was acceptable. Um, and and the, you said it at the outset, we are talking about a story that has dominated uh, local and now national headlines. We have been defined by crime, and now we're being defined by corruption in ways that are humiliating and heartbreaking. We know we're better than this. We know the people of Baltimore deserve better than this. And yet this is not, this is not even the most recent or most significant story. This is part of a sequence. We've got this grab bag of examples, whether it's a police commissioner, whether it's a previous mayor, whether it's uh, a campaign aide, whether it's, we've just got too many illustrations uh, for people in Baltimore to say, oh, no, no, this is just an exception. Unfortunately, it is not an exception. We have to root and branch take out the vestiges of corruption that have become so entrenched, so entrenched that people, you know, this story has, has captured our attention because we're talking about a mayor and the, the color of this healthy holly ridiculousness, um, you know, does make it camera ready. But, you know, before that, 
it was a campaign aid for campaign violations. Before that, it was perjury for not disclosing forms uh, of, uh, uh, on the economy. Before that, it was a mayor who was being convicted of you know, stealing gift cards. I mean, this is, this is just, it's become part of the daily drumbeat of Baltimore. And one of the reasons I'm focused on crime and corruption is because we have to change the national narrative. We also have to restore trust in government. Um, and I think as an outsider to come in and say, listen, I'm not part of this system. I don't, uh, I don't get paid by anyone to do the work that I want to do. I do it because it is service to my uh, city, to the people that I love, to a city that has given my family everything. And, and I, you know, it, it sometimes feels like you're just saying it, but you have to remember you are your parents' son. And my parents didn't become teachers in Baltimore because of the pay. They didn't become because of the glory. They did it because it was service. It was right. their job. Uh, and they loved it, and they did it for decades. Um, and you're right. I, I appreciate you saying that, sort of returning to our roots. Those are my roots. Um, uh, this is the city that, that raised me. Through, if, if you were Catherine Pugh's attorney, I mean, just take yourself outside of the, the candidate spotlight here, and if you were her attorney and if you were giving her legal advice, which you are obviously <laughs> more than qualified to do, um, well, I mean, what would you tell her? I mean, she hasn't resigned. She hasn't. The governor has now called on her to resign last week. Uh, the comptroller uh, has called on her to resign. All 14 members of the Baltimore City Council have called on her to resign. She's been on leave since, I believe, April 1st. And ex officio Mayor Jack Young is now um, taking the lead in the city. So what, what would you tell her at this point? Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm not going to give her legal advice. Uh, she's got perfectly <laughs> able counsel. I, I'll give yeah. her advice as a citizen, which may actually overlap. Um, and I, um, you know, if you go back to the, the Sun's coverage, uh, you know, the first day anyone called on her to resign, uh, it was me and the comptroller. And the Sun pointed out that, you know, I had called on both her and uh, Krenchik, the head of the UMMF system, to That's resign right. as well. Because, it, you know, we sometimes forget that there are multiple players that were involved in this. And so I called on both of them to, to, to resign. Um, I give the same advice now. And here's the dilemma. We've got a playbook that has been written in Baltimore, uh, where if you are under criminal investigation, one of the reasons you hold on is to use it as a bargaining chip uh, for plea negotiations to avoid prison time. And uh, because we can't compel her out of office, that is one carrot, one stick that she has uh, as a negotiation tool with, with, uh, with prosecutors if and when they come knocking. And I don't want to get ahead of uh, the important investigative work and prosecutorial decisions that have to be made. We're making assumptions, but let's assume that there is a risk of that. Um, that's her private legal dilemma. The public dilemma that she faces is she is now uh, 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 an impediment to progress in a city that I believe in my heart she loves. And what she has to understand is that what's best for this city may not be the best for her. But I hope uh, the citizens, the juries, the judges, whoever is in a position to judge her down the road would take seriously her saying, listen, I knew that I could uh, hold on until the bitter end. I knew that that had been done in the past. But I'm going to today step down because I realize that I no longer have the ability to lead a city that is in a desperate moment of historic crisis that desperately needs a leader, and that leader can't be me. Um, well, I mean, last me week the they let said me... she wasn't even lucid. I mean, that's to me that's problematic in in and of itself. And I and I hope that she does recover from her illness. That's 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 no that's no joke. And you know, even through you, and Ryan, let me just you were... say one thing about that. If you... Yeah, please. No, 
let me say one thing about that, which is, you know, not only do we have to take this on face value, we, we have to accept it. I mean, this is, this is a hard city to lead on a good day. Um, but if you are, you know, facing a very serious uh, illness and you've got the stress of this, you know, extraordinary pressure, uh, on the good day, it's hard to leave the city. Uh, you know, in her current situation, she must know that what's best for the city is for her to hand over the reins and to step down and to focus on her private legal duties so her attention is not divided. Yeah. Let me ask you about one, 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 form, one final question about Pew. You were, I believe, on a member of her transition team. At that time, were you, were you hopeful about the mayor's new tenure coming into office? Did you think that, you know, hey, look, we got a new mayor, and I think things could really turn around for the city? And it's been, it's been a stark contrast to where we are today. Yeah, I, look, I'm always hopeful, and I was hopeful in that moment. I, 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 I didn't, you know, support her, but when she was elected, I wanted to embrace her and help however I could. Frankly, it's the same approach I've taken with Ms. Mosby. I, I, you know, obviously disagree with a lot of the approaches that Ms. Mosby has taken, but since the election night, as I told her privately and as I told people publicly, we need Ms. Mosby to succeed. We needed back then Mayor Pugh to succeed, and we have seen the results, unfortunately, of their failures. Um, this is a circumstance where I wanted to help. It's what I've always wanted to do. This was not about, you know, we have to come together sometimes, even if the person on the other side is not the person you think is best situated. Um, I had a lot of hope. You know, she, she, I didn't know her well. Again, these were not the corridors of, of power that I spent time in, but she seemed sensible. She seemed to have her heart in the right place. She, I think she worked incredibly hard, which I think is really important. Um, and I wanted to lend my voice and lend my ideas and, and lend my help. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we haven't seen uh, the, the best products of that. Even before uh, this Healthy Holly thing, I was optimistic. I had testified against the previous nominee for police commissioner, uh, Joel Fitzgerald. I was very hopeful of Commissioner Harrison. Uh, you know, it feels like an eternity away, but there was a moment of real optimism not that long ago. It was a couple months ago um, where we had this new commissioner who seemed to have the right experience and the right attitude. The community had embraced him. The city council had unanimously approved him. He seemed ready to get to work. And I was, I was thrilled for the opportunity to turn the page. You know, when people were asking me, you know, for a time to think about running for mayor, I, I, first of all, I thought I had a lot more time to think about it. But the other thing was I thought, you know, look, I hope we get back on track. Uh, this is a, a problem that may not need a solution. I mean, we may really be in the – and then, you know, the wheels came off the wagon. So you see the next election in 2020 as a readjustment election? Uh, that is to put it politely. Uh, yeah. I think this is a, a you know, once-in-a-generation election. And we've been saying that uh, you know, a couple of times recently because Baltimore has never faced these kind of historic uh, challenges. We're not just talking about the worst per capita homicide rate uh, uh, you know, in recent vintage. These past five years is the worst per capita homicide rate in the country and the worst in Baltimore's history. We are more than twice as high. Just put that in perspective. More than twice as high a homicide rate as every other American city with the exception of two. If you cut our murder rate in half tomorrow, you would still be the third deadliest city in the country. I mean, that is off the charts. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is a, a grave moment where the only city on the eastern seaboard that is losing population, uh, you know, a proud city of once a million people is now down to just over 600,000. Uh, you know, readjustment is... We need a lot more than that. We need, we need to you know, restart the, the economy. We need to rebuild our transit grid. We have a lot of work to do. 
let's take let's put you in the setting. You're standing inside a Northeast Market in Baltimore City, one of the finest gyms of of the city. I love I love going there to get a bite to eat, whether it be for lunch or whatnot. And 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 you're talking to people um, who pass by that are hungry, <laughs> and you are just having some conversations, and they look you directly in the eye, and they say, "Sir, what are you going to do for us? What's that policy platform through?" Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I have the signature focus of my campaign is crime and corruption. There's nothing more important because we can't get to the other problems until we solve those. Um, and the policy solutions, you, you know, fixing a city is, an, is, a, is a marathon and a sprint. There are some long-term investments we need to make in rebuilding our economy and restarting our schools, but there's also some short-term things that we can do immediately. Um, and I think the work that, that we have to do gets started before you're in office. You know, when you win the primary in, uh, in Baltimore City, you've got an advantage uh, because of a city that is, you know, largely democratic. You ought to start both not taking anything for granted but also starting to put in the planning stages of eight months of a lead time before you take the reins, I think you are going to then put in place uh, the following kinds of policies. And here's how I'd frame it to the person in the Northeast market. The best measure of a city is whether people are coming or going. And right now, Baltimore is a city that is bleeding people. Uh, We're hemorrhaging uh, residents every year. You heard the headline recently that last year was a record year of departures, but it has been year after year after year here in Baltimore. And they're leaving because the tax rate for property is twice as high as every other place in the state. You've got some of the most broken, neglected, underfunded schools in the region, and you've got the highest homicide rate in the country. And so you're expecting people to pay more in taxes for their kids to have a higher chance of getting shot on their way to a neglected school where they can't drink water from the water fountain. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous formula, and nobody uh, can sell that. Nobody should buy that. Um, we have to change each of those pieces. We have to bring violent crime under control, and we have to do it quickly. We have to change the narrative. That requires us to have a just and capable police force. It also requires us to have enough police officers to do the work of policing a city that is this violent. We need to restart our schools. Uh, I've uh, uh, pledged to pursue universal pre-K for three-year-olds and four-year-olds. So those families that are thinking about leaving the city right around elementary school start saying, you know what, let's stick around for a couple of years because this is free daycare, which is such an important piece of what people in Baltimore need. I've pledged uh, to, to guarantee that every graduate of Baltimore City public high school gets free college at any university, any trade school, public or private, any community college in the state of Maryland. Because we need people to say, if I'm choosing between you know, Randallstown or Pikesville in the county or, or Gilman or some other private school, and I've got a choice, but I might be able to stay in the city school that seems to be turning around, that's an that's a, that's a incentive that may get their decision-making to change. I think it will. And uh, that's on the education score. We have to cut taxes. We can't do it overnight, but we can gradually reduce the tax rate uh, from 0.22 to 0.11, so that over the course of a decade, essentially 0.01 down each year, um, we are then in equilibrium with the jurisdictions around us. And that is, a, that is a way you can responsibly do it that I don't think anybody's really focused on. And then we need to create jobs. We need to create jobs in lots yeah. of sectors, both blue-collar as well as white-collar jobs. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite a policy platform, and I think people are, are saying, if I would talk to somebody in Baltimore City, of course, crime and corruption, that is the most important issues 
that are driving this conversation, given the last tenure of the three mayors that somehow have all ended up in, in some sort of disgrace or embarrassment, as you mentioned earlier, for the city. And this has got to stop. Now, I'd like to see the Orioles do a little bit better in the next couple <laughs> in this season. But that hey, I can't they're work. Help, but I'm optimistic. I, it's right. You're optimistic on that. So through here, here we are, and we're standing. I mean, we're we're at a crossroads. And let me ask you this question: What would be your relationship with the members of the city council? What would be? How would that dynamic work with you? Yeah, I mean. There's so much of work in government that does require partnership, that requires collaboration. Um, you know, when I was a federal prosecutor, we worked closely not only with our law enforcement partners, but with city leaders, with state leaders, because this work requires lots of laboring oars, laboring oars to be uh, in, in the water. Um, I just want to make clear that the city council, the citizens of Baltimore, everybody has got a voice and needs to help. This cannot be done by any person alone, but it has to start at the top. The, the, the leadership in terms of the tone that needs to be set, uh, the idea that we were not going to tolerate waste and fraud and corruption in our agencies has to start at the top. Uh, and making it clear that we have a vision that connects these different parts, I think is really important. I mean, we've got a lot of, of leaders of good faith here in Baltimore, but we have not seen Truly, we have not seen a unified vision of how to address the problems of Baltimore in a generation. Um, and the notion of somebody from the outside, which is what I proudly am going to end up being, coming in and saying, listen, here's a blueprint for Baltimore. Here's how we tackle crime and the schools, the infrastructure and the transit grid, restarting our economy and reducing our taxes. All of these are things we can't take them serially. We can't take them one at a time. We literally have to invest in all of these things simultaneously. That doesn't mean certain things aren't priorities, like crime and corruption. Uh, that's why the former prosecutor uh, is, is going to put that at the, at the center of every conversation and the center of every meeting. Of course. But having a vision of how these things connect, we really haven't seen that in a, in a generation. What you'll hear are the, are the sound bites from the other politicians. You'll say, oh, yeah, we have to invest yeah. in our schools. You have to, but not only will you hear those headlines, but you will hear the detailed policies behind them. You'll hear how to pay for each and every one of them. You know, just in the first two weeks, we've got some great attention around ideas. We were the first campaign in mayoral history in Baltimore to release our taxes. But we didn't just do that to make sure people knew the kind of transparency Your we wanted to return, usher in. Right? That's right. That's right. Our tax returns. Yeah. That's right. In addition, we listed a bunch of policies about how you uh, ensure transparency at each and every agency. The, the next week, we put out a plan to, to tax cannabis sales in Baltimore. We basically have a $1 billion market that is monopolized by the black market and by you know, uh, medical marijuana dispensaries that, that don't pay taxes. Um, we can change that. And I, in addition to that, included how you would make sure the money came in, where the money would go. All of those details are what inspire a level of confidence in front of your jury. Uh, and the jury this time is the people of Baltimore, and they're going to hear the, the, the aspiration and ambition that I have for this city, the hope and optimism I feel every day, but they're also going to hear the detailed policies and the specific solutions that people need to read and digest to say, you know what? This guy's not just talking. He's not just a politician of yesteryear. He is coming up here with a grand vision for what this city could be and a plan for how to get there. 
Yeah, expanding on that thought, you last week released a plan about taxi marijuana. Now, we know it's still illegal at the federal level. Are you, are you saying that you believe that marijuana should be legalized? Uh, you know, I think that's a fait accompli. Not only do a lot of people believe that, I think it's an inevitability in the state of Maryland and eventually in lots of places across the eastern shore and across the eastern seaboard and then across the country. Um, it's essentially there now. We have this sort of chaotic free-for-all. Police and prosecutors in Baltimore can't decide whether to enforce the law. Uh, medical yeah. dispensaries are untaxed and unrepresentative. Uh, and you've got street marijuana that's getting more and more dangerous as it becomes laced with everything from rat poison to fentanyl. And that's so right. this completely chaotic market needs some common sense solutions. Um, so yes, I believe we should do it. And I think Baltimore can take the lead. Baltimore, as you know, Ryan, is one of the two jurisdictions in the state of Maryland that has independent taxing authority. And under yeah, Article 28 of our, yeah. of, our, of our charter, that's right, we can go in and say, you know what, uh, uh, we're going to issue some permits in a sensible and safe way. We're going to stop this chaos in the market, and we're going to make sure that we start getting some of the funds that are needed to fund some of the programs. That do. Look, you're talking to a guy who's never smoked a cigarette. Uh, am I proud that, that this is one of the future economies of Baltimore? Uh, that's not at the top of my list, but I'm not sure we have the luxury of being choosers right now. This city needs jobs, it needs revenue, and if we're going to cut taxes and do it responsibly, we need economies of the future to grow, and this is one of them. Through as a someone running for one of the top leadership roles in the state of Maryland, look, there's nothing more visible aside from the governor than the mayor of Baltimore City. Do you have uh, a, a thought on the upcoming speaker, speaker's race on who you might be supporting, or what are your thoughts? Now, look, I respect all the people that are, that are vying for this, and this has become a, you know, uh, an important debate on a lot of fronts. It's been a long time since we've had an uh, opportunity for a new speaker, and there are people that I think feel passionately about this. Um, I'm not close enough to that conversation uh, to, to choose one side or the other. Um, I, I'm just not. I, I'm not going to weigh in on every single, you know, inside uh, inside the, the king's court or queen's court political intrigue. Um, that's not something I've paid attention to. I wish them, wish them all the best, um, and I have confidence that whoever emerges from that will be in a good position to take us forward. No, I, that's, that's a good answer, and there's two candidates that are competing. Maggie McIntosh, of course, is from Baltimore City, and then Derek Davis from PG County. Um, whomever is elected would be historic um, in that sense. And, of course, you know the state of Maryland and Baltimore City, they work interchangeably. You and I had a conversation about Baltimore being the economic engine, and I am so far – you have – I have looked at your policy proposal, and I'm looking at your website now, and it's, um, it's thrillforbaltimore.com, and uh, you can sign up there to receive your information. You can contribute to your candidacy. You can contact you, um, and you can join the fight there for your um, – on your team. And so final thoughts, what, uh, what do you want to leave voters who listen to this interview? What do you want to leave them with to, to consider you as you move forward in your campaign? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the election's a year away, uh, April 28th of next year, but that year will go very quickly. And I need everybody in Baltimore and frankly beyond to engage on this race. This is a critical opportunity to turn the page on the career politicians of yesteryear and to start a new era uh, that I hope will be the beginning of the greatest turnaround story in American history. 
And, and when I talk about that, people say, gosh, that sounds very ambitious. And I'm always reminded of this story uh, that my sister and I heard a lot, um, but never from my, uh, my, my father, but from, from his peers. When he first came to this country in 1980, along with my mother, he had never taught here before. My mom had. And he interviewed for a job at Edmondson High School, and the principal said, you know, are you really ready for this? These are not the kids in Sri Lanka at your, at your school. You've been teaching for a while, but these are the kids of Baltimore. And the, ch- the way they treat you, the way they respect you, uh, what they have as a foundation, it's going to be different. Are you really up for this? You've got a thick accent, and, you know, this is a foreign country and a foreign tongue. And my father said, let me try. Let me try. Let me try to do this work and, uh, and allow what I have as potential uh, to pour into these neighborhoods. He taught for 37 years in Baltimore City. And that is, I think, what inspires me to do this. I very much believe that I've got the best plan and the best ideas and the best heart for this. And for anybody who believes that I am being too ambitious, I just say to them, let me try. Let me try. Well, your parents certainly set the, paved the path for you. And as an immigrant coming over into this country, there's nothing more ambitious than setting up in America and starting a family and creating a life and a country that is, that is foreign to you. And I, I mean, I am, that is the true American dream for any person who wants to become an American citizen. And I, I, I look at your life and I say, this is somebody who has clearly a lot of passion and I wish you the best moving forward um, through Vignarasha, running for mayor of Baltimore City. Thank you so much for coming on this morning. And uh, I'm sure this will be one of many conversations. And as you noted, the primary is one year away. So we have a lot of time to talk. I, I'd like that a lot. And I'm so grateful for the attention you're paying and for the opportunity to talk to all of your listeners. Thank you so much. You bet. Thanks. And you have a great week. You too. Through Vignaraja, running for mayor of Baltimore City. Check him out on the web. That's T-H-I-R-U-4-Baltimore.com. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to a Minor Detail podcast. Find me on the web at aminordetail.com. Find us on Facebook, on Twitter. We're going to bring you the latest and breaking news of Maryland politics. Thank you for listening, and have a great week. You can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, or any application where you listen to podcasts. Like a Minor Detail podcast on Facebook and follow the conversation on Twitter at AMD Podcast. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring a Minor Detail podcast, please reach out to me at ryan at a minor detail.com. Thanks so much for listening.